At 2 a.m. on Christmas morning in 1976, I was awakened by a mad pounding, screeching on our front door. I went downstairs to determine what was going on, and since I could not see the, who was on the other side of the door, I tried to ask a few questions through the door. All I received for an answer was more pounding, more screeching. But amidst the cacophony, I heard the words, I'm hurt. So I opened the door. As soon as I did, a man lunged through, looked wildly around, vomited, and collapsed at the bottom of the stairs where my wife and children, my wife who was pregnant, was standing at the top. I called an ambulance, and it came with an uncalled police car right behind it. The man was drunk and had smashed his car into a tree. By the time the medics and the police finally left, it was 4.30 a.m. Christmas morning. The probability of the children going back to sleep on Christmas morning at that point was, of course, less than zero. About 4.30 p.m. on that Christmas afternoon, my wife Mary told me there was spotting, bleeding. Before Christmas Day was over, a miscarriage had taken place. The doctor called it a natural abortion. But one week earlier, he had said, everything is just fine. The cause of the Christmas loss, he said, was probably the trauma and severe tension of early Christmas morning, coupled with the fatigue of the day. Stay with me now, as I slightly change subjects, but not really change subjects. In the very first news broadcast I saw on TV, after the start of the 1991 war between the United States and Iraq, an American pilot was being interviewed. He said he experienced no interference in dropping his load of bombs on Baghdad and that when he left Baghdad, and this is a quote from him, it was lit up like a Christmas tree. For reasons 
probably related to my experience on Christmas Day, 1976. The immediate, immediate thought that came to my mind was, imagine all the abortions that are going to take place in Baghdad over the next weeks. As I read the triumphant headlines in the newspaper day after day in 1991, for example, U.S. pounds Iraq from the air, and saw the pictures of missiles striking into Iraq, into Baghdad, into other cities, I could not help but hear the silent screams of all the little Iraqi children in utero who were having their lives ripped from them at that moment. The lucky ones were the ones who took a direct hit from the bombings, from the missiles, the ones who were aborted because of percussion, vibration, or because of terror, trauma, Malnourishment or exhaustion visited upon their mothers by the war would probably have suffered less, a less agonizing death at the wrong end of a suction machine in an abortion clinic. There was a famous news personality at that time named Charlie Rose who had a daily program on the national public radio stations, television as well as audio, where he interviewed many people who were in the news. In 1991, he interviewed John Lee Anderson, a writer for the New Yorker magazine who was reporting to him live, directly from Baghdad, after the war had begun. As part of a discussion of whether those Iraqis who had opposed Saddam Hussein might nevertheless turn against the United States if the destruction wrought upon the people of Iraq became too great, Anderson said that such was a real possibility emphasize his point, he added, quote, my driver, a sweet Iraqi man, was very bitter today because one of his daughters suffered what he called an involuntary abortion during last night's bombing due to fright. She was three to four months pregnant, end quote. The political and economically motivated silence in the church, in pro-life circles, in Christian peace and justice movements, on this matter of abortions induced by war, 
is ear-splitting. It is as if abortions for saving a person's reputation are absolutely evil. Abortions for saving a family's economic life are absolutely evil. Abortions for saving a person's job are absolutely evil. Abortions for saving a person's uh, reputation are absolutely evil. Abortions for saving a human being from what he or she perceives as an intolerable personal future are absolutely evil. But abortions to save oil fields for the present and future control and profit of the American and British oil interest, or abortions to save the world from non-existent weapons of mass destruction, or abortions to bring democracy to the world, are somehow morally permissible. Silence follows them, not rallies, not pamphlets, not meetings, not appeals to the Supreme Court. It is as if, for these abortions, patriotic earplugs have been discreetly employed by the pro-lifers, by the churches, by the Christian peace and justice organizations in order not to hear what they have been telling others to listen to for over 50 years. The silent screams of the child in utero being torn apart by United States, British, French, and German sea, air, and land bombardments of cities, towns, and villages. It does no good to slickly try to argue that when Baghdad is bombed, it is not the primary intention of the bombing to induce abortions, but rather the primary intention of the bombing is to save Kuwait, or to save the oil wells in Baghdad, or to save our country's standard of living, or to save us from a hypothetical attack by nuclear weapons by Saddam Hussein. These clever arguments are nothing more than the pro-choice arguments for killing the innocent child in the wound now wrapped in a flag. No one ever chooses abortion just for the fun of it. Abortion is always chosen in order to save something that is considered of more value than the child in the womb, or in order to be saved from some evil that is considered a greater evil than murdering the child in the womb. This is what the pro-choice philosophy is all about. Killing the absolutely innocent as the lesser evil.
and mutantis, mutandus, this is what the killing of innocent children in utero and innocent children post-utero in war is all about. It is not killing. It is murder. The killing of the innocent. The intended killing of the innocent. The foreseen killing of the innocent is murder. The unjustified taking of a human life. However, modern industrial war, once unleashed, produces an instant Auschwitz for the unborn. That's fact, not conjecture. Mass abortions are the necessary and 100% inevitable consequence of modern war. That which a person is morally responsible for is that which a person knows with moral certainty will occur. If he or she makes a particular choice, what that choice's consequences will be are what that person is responsible for not before the Supreme Court of the United States, not before the Court of Public Opinion, but before the Tribunal of God. An abortionist cannot claim that he or she does not intend an abortion that is that is morally certain to kill the child in the womb by claiming he or she only intends to prevent the mother's bodily health from deteriorating or to protect the health of the body politic. Health, whether of the mother or of the economy of the body politic, is being preserved here at the cost of knowingly and willingly killing innocent life in utero. That is, by engaging in the evil of murder. So, where is the church's pro-life voice for the voiceless? The voiceless children in the wound in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, the Ukraine. Children in utero who are daily being chopped to pieces by military abortions. Or is abortion by war the great exception to the inviolable right to life of the innocent child in utero? If so, how many abortion-efficient military actions is a desert oil field worth 
in the eyes of God. How many abortions are justified to destroy non-existent weapons of mass destruction? How many abortions does God permit in order to get rid of a two-bit dictator who sits on oil-rich desert? How many? One? A hundred? A thousand? Ten thousand? A million? Where are the pro-life churches and peace movements, the pro-life activists protesting the industrial high-tech war on the unborn? It has always been the pro-choice understanding that the church's pro-life movement would come around to the pro-choice position when a serious interest of the church's own or its members was attacked in a way that required the pro-life movement to see the complexity of the issue of abortion and the naivete of its absolutist prohibition against destroying a child in utero. Is preserving borderline fascist Muslim dictatorships in Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, or neo-fascist dictatorships in the Ukraine or control over oil fields or the vain posturing of patriotism. Just the kind of complexity the pro-life movement and its leadership needs to find the exception to its total rejection of in utero homicide. It appears to be. Why was the church, the pro-life movement, the Christian peace and justice organizations, not be a microphone for those screaming in silence in the wounds of Iraq mothers as tens of thousands of abortions took place due to the brutal economic sanctions imposed on Iraq by the United States under William Clinton. Sanctions that also resulted in at least 400,000 post-utero innocent children under the age of 12 being murdered. <clears throat> Why is the church, the pro-life movement, peace and Christian peace and justice organizations, not the voice in the world pleading for the lives of those children in the wound who were being torn limb from limb by the dogs of industrial war. Both <clears throat> Hebrew Scripture and the New Testament are clear. 
Where more is expected, silence is sinful. Moral laxism, that is, the unwillingness to include in one's moral evaluation obvious consequences of one's choices, where the destruction of human beings is concerned, is among the gravest forms of evil, especially for those in positions of moral or spiritual leadership. Christmas tree lights are a symbol of new life, new life from the baby Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who has just been allowed to complete his nine months in the womb of his mother, Mary. To analogize a Baghdad of a thousand horror-filled infernos, a new, if you will, massacre of the holy innocents, to analogize that to a lit Christmas tree is a grotesque misrepresentation of the diabolical event that is taking place. But <clears throat> such is the way that military, that military training teaches human beings in, their, in its control. It teaches them to euphemize the heinous. The destruction of the most innocent life on earth, the child in utero or post-utero, is sloughed off in military jargon as mere collateral damage. And is thereby <clears throat> justified. This amounts to just rename the heroin you are selling to a child as a tic-tac and you are morally off the hook. Stupidity. The act is what it is. The destruction on a mass scale of innocent human life. In the case of military abortions, <clears throat> in the case of the military killing the innocent, Christian morality is nothing more than finding a morally acceptable name, tag, for an evil, and thus, making the evil become good, even Christ-like. This is an accurate representation of a human mind and heart that has been doped into a moral stupor by the war propaganda of erotic nationalism. Now let us pause here a moment to think. Is it not the flagrant misnaming of reality that is the foundation for all pro-abortions, philosophies, and politics? 
Is it not the obstinate refusal to call murder by its correct name, murder, that is at the heart of the pro-choice position? Is it not the misnaming of murder as just another medical operation that is the hook on which all pro-choice propaganda hangs? Certainly the time has come for a clear, unambiguous position statement and for Christ-like action by the Christian pro-life movement, the church, and the Christian peace and justice organizations on behalf of the unborn of all countries in all wars. I believe God could be trying to raise the value and significance of the church's pro-life movement and his salvific designs. But to do this, the movement must have the courage to say unequivocally, no, to a misguided erotic patriotism that ignores or justifies abortions as just another military operation. If, however, the church and the pro-life movement now succumb to the temptation to start hair-splitting, cleverly sidestepping, its uncompromising and vigorous defense of all the unborn, it is finished as a moral force because it will have become the embodiment of the untruth it opposes. It will be just another organization saying, oh, I'm against abortion, but. So to be clear, the church, the pro-life movement, is now being called to pass through the fire of their own teaching. The integrity of their response today will be the measure of the power of their proclamation tomorrow. Not only in relation to abortion, but in many, many other areas of morality. Murder does not become anything less than murder because it is mass murder in the wound or in war. Logically, Dancing around with political and rhetorical verbiage that simply does not match the reality is what the pro-choice movement does in order to justify abortion. These deceitful mind games must not become what the Christian pro-life movement and the church and Christian peace and justice organizations practice in order to justify or ignore the abortion mill of war. Even if the church's very profitable relationship with the nation-state and its money elites is jeopardized, murder is murder. Killing 
the unborn innocent or the born innocent, is murder, not mere collateral damage. I hope I'm wrong. But because of its graceless non-witness up to this moment in time, I'm deeply concerned that the church, that the Christian pro-life movement, the church, and Christian peace and justice organizations, and especially those who lead them and control them, have intentionally turned a deaf ear to the silent screams of uncountable numbers of pre-born human beings destroyed by high-tech war operations. Instead of horror, they primarily experience the sports bar emotion of being the winner, the victor, when seeing the enemy city lit up like a Christmas tree. God's anawim of the womb deserves so, so much more than this. From those who have been given by God, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a mind to understand, as well as a voice to speak. Sometime after the trauma and the fatigue induced natural abortion, as the doctor called it, of Christmas Day in 1976, my wife told me that when matters began to look medically irreversible. She named the little baby Valentine. 